Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. This morning, as the protest at Parliament continues, an exclusive interview with Police Commissioner Andrew Costa. Why aren't police shutting the protest down? Police would have to uh, move in using batons, probably using tear gas, to clear that crowd off the grounds. Um, it's likely to lead to extended confrontation. Nationals finance spokesperson Simon Bridges is with us. And remember all the talk during the assisted dying debate about giving New Zealanders better palliative care? Well, hospices say they're on the brink of an existential crisis. For the system, that's unacceptable. For patients and families, it's unforgivable. But we begin this morning with the protest. Right now, New Zealanders are angry. It doesn't matter where they sit on the protest debate. As the crowd numbers surge at Parliament, police are under increasing pressure to shut it down. Wellingtonians have complained about abuse and even violence from some who've gathered at Parliament. But with marquees, the parked cars and makeshift kitchens, the protesters have taken an entrenched position. So why aren't police being more assertive? Why aren't they using force? And what does it mean for the rule of law if thousands of New Zealanders can break it right at the feet of our parliament as police just watch on? Late yesterday afternoon, I sat down with Police Commissioner Andrew Costa. I'm going to cut to the chase and ask the question that thousands of New Zealanders are asking. Are you too soft? No. We are doing uh, what we believe is the right thing to do to achieve the safest outcome for everyone involved in the situation. We have a massive, unlawful protest at the feet of our democracy. How has this protest been allowed to get to this stage in size? It's really, it's really confronting uh, and it's really uh, in your face for those who are close to it. Um, this protest is pretty unprecedented in terms of its nature and tactics. Uh, and of course, we can look at it in hindsight now and go, it shouldn't have got to this. But if we look at the decision points along the way, I'm confident the right things have been done at the right time. OK, if you had your time again, what would you have changed? Some people might say that on the first night when the tents started being put up that we should have gone in. Um, the level of force that we would have had to use to achieve success at that time would have been unacceptable to most New Zealanders uh, and would have been very subject to criticism in terms of its lawfulness. Uh, on the Thursday, we deployed police staff in uh, to endeavour to arrest our way through the situation. Um, the number of arrests quickly became too many to continue. Um, New Zealanders contacted us and, and many still are saying how proud they were of the restraint and professionalism shown by police at that time. Uh, to achieve clearance at that time, again, we would have had to use a level of force that most New Zealanders would have found uh, confronting and unacceptable. But these are illegal protesters. I mean, the, the law is explicit. They'd been there for days at that point, and your officers are just standing there. Yeah, look, there's no doubt that this protest is uh, unlawful and unreasonable. But our law does protect the right to protest, and it's a balancing act between um, the matter being protested, the nature of the protest, and the um, lawfulness and reasonableness of it. Clearly, this protest has crossed a line. Um, our focus right now is on making sure we can get the safest re resolution for all concerned. You said before that at one point there had been too many arrests to continue. What do you mean by that? We had arrested over 100 people um, and our ability to keep 
um, dealing with that number of people with the staff that we had available uh, was capacity was reached. So police were outnumbered? The normal, we, we've always been outnumbered, that's the situation with, with crowds. Um, but uh, another tactic that police can use to clear that kind of crowd is simply to use force to drive the crowd away. And that uh, ends up with scenes similar to the ones we saw on the Springbok tours. Is that what you're worried about? If we look to the um, low points of policing in our country, we would point to events like the Springbok tour. We would point to Bastion Point. Um, those situations are um, things that most people would say policing should be trying to move away from. If we look at how we've policed in the last couple of years, Ihu Matau cleared uh, without violent confrontation. Uh, if we look at the way we police through COVID, unprecedented measures put in place. In most countries, you saw clashes between police and protesters. In New Zealand, it was done peacefully. So um, this approach can work, but it does uh, require different ways of working than we've seen in the past. All right, I want to give you the opportunity to spell out the alternative that you are concerned about. You've said that police are focused on reaching a safe resolution to this standoff. So for all those people who want to see police move in, clear the crowds, make arrests, use violence if necessary, what is the alternative? What would happen if police went in and tried that today? Mm. So there are two aspects to this. There's the immediate situation where you have a substantial crowd which police would have to uh, move in using batons, probably using tear gas, to clear that crowd off the grounds. Um, it's likely to lead to extended confrontation. And we've got a broader picture of protests around the country around the same issue. Uh, and of course we would see uh, different things happening. During the Springbok tour, one of the things was a real hardening of the protest activity based on the law enforcement response to it. And so we have to look quite carefully at, at how we manage that whole picture. Could police clear the protest today? I think police could clear the protest, but I don't think that the harm that would come from how we would need to do that isn't as acceptable relative to the harm the protest is doing at this point in time. But the alternative is that police stand there in the eyes of many looking impotent. Is that really a form of control? I understand uh, how frustrating and difficult this is for uh, people in the area and how confronting it is to see this happening on the grounds of Parliament. Um, our alternative is one that would have far-reaching consequences. And so we have to balance the question of law enforcement with keeping the peace. Both functions that we have, usually completely aligned, in this case, there is a bit of a tension about the best way to achieve those outcomes. OK, you talked about the way that police have managed other protests in relatively recent history, the likes of Ihumatao, the Black Lives Matter protest. The difference this time is that there are protesters making explicit death threats around our parliamentarians, around journalists, around people in our society. How can that sort of protest be allowed to continue and even compared to the likes of Ihumatao? There's an element in this crowd that is unsavoury, um, unpleasant and in some cases uh, you know, crossing the line into criminality. Um, but also in this crowd you have a wide variety of other people uh, and so it's easy to focus on the fringe and the fringe is a problem um, but also to recognise that the crowd is very diverse.
This convoy was all over Facebook as they made their way to Wellington. Are you prepared to accept there was a failure for police intelligence in the lead up to this protest? I think we need to look and see what we, what we knew and what we ought to have known. Um, I can't say with confidence whether there was enough there for us to realise we ought to have been positioned differently. I knew about the convoy. So we knew about the convoy, clearly. Um, it's one thing How to... How is there not enough? I mean, you, you need only look overseas at, at the likes of the storming of the capital or indeed the protests in Ottawa to see how quickly something like this can go from a relatively small group on Facebook to a significant protest. So we have... Uh hundreds of protests turn up at Parliament. Most of them come, they have their say, and they move on. Uh, every situation is a little bit different, so it's easy in hindsight to say we ought to have uh, known that this would occur, but I don't believe that there was uh, specific enough intelligence available to us to anticipate um, that it was going to be so different to what we have seen previously. I want to show you this. It is the front page of the Dominion Post from Friday. We want our city back. How do you feel when you see something like that? I completely agree. Um, you know, this is a really unpleasant, difficult situation. Um, and I, I'm concerned that uh, people are being affected in this way. Uh, but I also recognise that there is a strength of feeling that uh, sits inside of um, this protest movement that we need to deal with quite carefully in order not to create much longer-lasting problems for our country. What's the plan then? Our current approach is de-escalation, working with uh, the organisers within the protest groups there, uh, acknowledging that there are a range of people um, to try and achieve a de-escalation. I think there's an understanding that um, ongoing escalation of this protest is not in the interests of the issues that they are pursuing. And so that's our current approach. These people don't care about authorities. These people don't care about your badge. Uh, they are the, the ones that we have been able to engage with are um, respectful and having a conversation. Uh, we have been able to talk about the need to contain the protest to its current location. And we have discussed um, police enforcement activity continuing on the peripheries. Uh, and so that's something that we keep to work, work towards. If that approach fails, clearly we will have to change tack What's the next step, if it fails? There are a range of options available. Like you know, what, we, what's we, the most well, likely? We're, we're seeing a situation play out in Canada at the moment. They've had to reach for emergency powers. They've had to deploy a significant um, you know, range of different staff to the problem. Recognising their situation's a little different from ours, but you know, that's one path. Would you support a state of emergency being declared in Wellington now? I don't think we've reached that kind of threshold, uh, and our approach is designed to not have to go down that path. Can you set up roadblocks and check the equipment that people are bringing to the protests without the state of emergency powers? We don't have a basis for stopping people passing into that area at this point. Um, potentially emergency powers could take us down that path if that threshold was reached. You can't stop someone from taking a marquee onto the lawns of Parliament? Uh, we would not do that right now. Um, Can on, you? On, we don't have the powers to do that right now. Can you stop someone from bringing a sleeping bag, cooking equipment? Not at this stage. Would alternative decisions by government have enabled police to potentially end this protest earlier? Look, we are um, 
in a very complex situation uh, where it's very difficult to foresee how things are going to track. So there's an element where, you know, with hindsight, we could have done this or that. Like what? Look, one what, of the, no, what decisions at government could have been made? No, I'm, I, it's not appropriate for me to speak to decisions of government, but uh, I but can you speak... You just hinted that there are, there are decisions that could have been made at government that would have potentially allowed police to end this protest sooner. Look, just, this, just give, me, give me an answer on that. Yes this is no? a, yeah. It's not appropriate for me to comment on what others ought to have done. Um, we are in a situation where there is... Uh, protests occurring in a range of places around the country, unprecedented times that we have been through. You know, health uh, controls that were put in place necessarily to keep the public safe. Um, we're operating in a very complex situation at the moment, um, the overlap between the role of police and um, these issues. What was the impact of the Speaker's decision to turn on the sprinklers and blast the protest with irritating music? Uh, look, I, I think it's best for others to speak to um, what played out there. I can say it was not a police tactic. Uh, it's not appropriate for me to comment on the actions of the Speaker who is responsible for Is Parliament. there a potential that antagonised the protesters? Uh, look, I, I think you get a perspective on the ground uh, about what the situation was there. Um, again, we can look in hindsight at the way things have played and, and uh, interrogate them. We are where we are today, and we need to take the approach that will most helpfully uh, reduce the impact of the situation. What do police know about the funding of these protests? Uh, we've seen a range of different things going on. Uh, give a little pages or it's equivalent, you know, crowdsourcing. Yeah. Um, we've seen contributions in kind. Uh, we've seen people setting up kitchens to provide food to protesters in the surrounding area. So quite a wide variety of things. Are police investigating any forms of illicit funding? Uh, of course it's a consideration as to whether there's um, something more sinister. I, I won't go into details of that, but what I would say is um, there have been a range of um, supports from wider than, than the protest playing into this. From overseas? Uh, I can't speak to that at this stage. We've seen images of police honging protesters, images of police giving protesters lollies. From what you understand, are there police on the front lines of this protest who empathise and support the protesters? I'm not aware of um, police officers working there who are, are supporting it, but um, we, we walk a really delicate balance here. We need to maintain engagement uh, and respectful dialogue with members of the public even if they're not being respectful to us, and sometimes in circumstances where um, the boundaries are well crossed. Um, that's about professionalism. That's about uh, maintaining the best ability that we can um, to fix the situation. Uh, you know, it doesn't condone what's going on there. The Police Association says some officers on the front line are frustrated that they think this appeasement uh, strategy is embarrassing the police and they'd like to see a more forceful response. Is that the feedback you're getting? Uh, I'm sure we've got a wide range of views within our front line, just like there's a wide range of views in our community. Um, my decision making has been informed by 
a bird's eye picture of the situation and the advice of my executive and of specialists who know how to deal with these situations. Um, so I'm happy with the approach we're taking. I know not everyone agrees with it and I understand the perspective. Are you speaking with police in Ottawa? Yes, we, we're of course speaking internationally to understand uh, what's occurred across those different places. Um, this protest seems to be most closely modelled on the Canadian one. I would note that right now it's not blocking critical infrastructure. Uh, it's different, we've got a crowd situation rather than people um, camping in vehicles. Uh, but we will talk to anyone who can help us. As Commissioner, you have emphasised the importance of policing by consent. But for two years, law-abiding citizens in New Zealand have followed all the COVID rules, at sometimes seeing their businesses go under, being separated from family members, and now on television they can watch thousands of people flout the rules with impunity. Why should those people continue to follow the law when apparently the law doesn't matter? Yeah, look, it is um, incredibly frustrating for those who have done the hard yards to get through this really unusual time that we've had. Um, policing by consent means con policing with the consent of the communities that we look after. It's not a new concept, it's the foundation of policing um, in the UK and New Zealand. Um, enforcement has to be there at a point in time. The balance we have here is keeping the peace and enforcing the law. Uh, and the tactics need to uh, be appropriate for the safest outcome for all concerned. It feels like you're losing the consent of the community. Look, I appreciate there's a wide variety of views on this. Um, I would note that the um, situation in the Springbok tour, for example, um, led to a long-term loss in trust of confidence in police um, because the violence used was so confronting. Uh, the situation in front of us could very readily become the same with a police uh, enforcement intervention. And so I want us to explore all reasonable options before we land up there. You personally are under massive pressure at the moment. Is your job on the line? Look, I'm focused on the job at hand. I think that's what people would expect me to do. Um, and that's a matter for others. Do you think your minister has confidence in you? She expressed confidence yesterday. Do you think the public has confidence in you? As I said, I think there's a wide variety of views on this. Um, ultimately, I will be judged by the history of this and what happens. In the moment, I need to make the best decisions I can. If you lose the public's confidence, will you stand down? I'm not thinking about that at this stage. I'm focused on the job. From the information you have available, what is the likeliest scenario for this situation ending? There are a range of ways that this could... What's the likeliest? Uh, this, as I, I, have, I have no idea. I think there are many different ways that this could play. Um, the no judge, idea? Well, the judgment I'm taking is based on my best assessment, which is I think that there is a good opportunity to de-escalate and to get to a place where this, the protest can be um, resolved without the need to bring large-scale violence to a crowd of this size. That is Police Commissioner Andrew Costa. After the interview, he sought to clarify a legal point. He told me police do have the power to close roads in some circumstances, but those powers are not presently engaged. Shortly, we will take you to Canada to look at the protests there. But after the break, getting pumped at the pump? 
Petrol, food, rent, the cost of everything's going up. But who's to blame? National's finance spokesperson gives us his take. Hoki Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Last year, Simon Bridges called Police Commissioner Andrew Costa a wokester and said he wasn't fit to be the top cop. Simon Bridges is with us live from Tauranga this morning. Kia ora, thanks for being with us. What did you make of that interview? Kia ora. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's a sense with which he's obviously under a lot of pressure. Um, there are some in the Labour Party who'd like to throw him under the bus, but at the end of the day, uh, they chose him precisely for the views that he's implementing here at this pro protest. Uh, and so despite him being politically inconvenient to the government, uh, that's not a choice they get to make. Look, in the end, uh, this is the beehive's mess, and they've got to fix it. How do you think police should approach this protest from this point on? Well, you, you canvassed that in the interview, I thought, very well, whether it was, you know, hindsight moving quicker, whether there's strategic things around the edges that could pick off parts of this protest, certainly the cars, the vehicles, so there's less disruption uh, to Wellingtonians, because we know, look, there are businesses that will go under, uh, and Nicola Willis, uh, my colleague, has been talking to those uh, people. It's a lot of, lot of pain in the ground uh, there. I, I think actually it's incumbent on the government to realise this isn't just about the protesters. Actually, it's also about a, a, a quite a significant chunk of New Zealanders who are worried, who are stressed, who are sick and tired of uh, what they see as capricious, arbitrary changing rules and regulations, whether it's you know traffic lights, rats, isolation periods, uh, an MIQ that's passed its use-by date, whether it's the mm. mandates themselves. And I think the government really has to grip that up okay. and give New Zealand as a sense of the journey and, the, and what needs to happen. I just here. want to be really clear because you're the guy who called the commissioner a wokester. Should police be using force to end this protest? Uh, look, I, I actually understand, have quite some sympathy for the position the commissioner now at least uh, is in. We could argue about what should and shouldn't have happened. I don't think New Zealanders do want to see people going in or police going in with batons uh, mm. and tear gas. Um, that, that's not to excuse what's going on and, and what's happening there. I don't think mm. they want that. In the end, I come back to it, this will be resolved. The only way it will be resolved is by the beehive. OK, let's talk about the economy. Inflation in New Zealand is at 5.9%. Of course, inflation is an issue all around the world at the moment, but to what extent is New Zealand government spending responsible? Uh, look, I think it, it plays a very significant role, and so there's an argument about what needs to happen there. You've got inflation 5.9%. It's worth remembering uh, that there are a lot of New Zealanders who never will have seen that. It does mean they won't have enough at the pump. They won't be able to afford food, uh, all the food they want uh, at the supermarket. There'll be kids who are 30 um, who won't be able to um, You go out and buy a house and be living in their parents' garage. So this is for real. I think the other number that's worth throwing into this, Jack, is 2.6%. That is wage growth. And what that tells you quite clearly when you put those numbers together is that real wages are going backwards right now and New Zealanders are getting poorer. You then add, add in interest rates which are going to have to go up as a result of the inflation and that's a double or even a triple whammy uh, on New Zealanders. So I come to spending. 
Clearly some of this is international, but the domestic part is significant and it is growing. We in New Zealand, the Labour government, spent more throughout the uh, pandemic than any government in the OECD other than the United States. Now there were clear positives to that, but there's also a hangover that comes with that in terms of inflation. I, I don't necessarily want to revisit what's passed. Well, no, 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 that's not fair. That's not fair. If you're going to blame the, if you're going to blame the government for driving inflation, I want to know specifically what government spending has led to I'll inflation. Give I'll give you that. I'll give you that. The upcoming budget has a $6 billion uh, operating allowance. <laughs> the upcoming budget hasn't coming. caused the 5.9% the... of inflation that we've got now. The up, um, upcoming the... budget hasn't happened yet. No, no. To this point, what spending, to this well, point, what spending well, I... has led to that inflation? Well, you've had a COVID fund that hasn't been spent on COVID in significant parts. It's gone on three waters. It's gone on a health restructure that delivers nothing in terms of health changes that make a difference to New Zealand in terms of hip operations and the like. But I am trying to be, Jack, actually reasonable about this. I, I accept elevated mm. spending was required, although there definitely was wastage. But my point to you and to New Zealanders is, actually, if we keep on that track, and don't ask me, ask the ANZ who said this week, actually, if spending keeps going up the way it has been, we're in serious trouble, right? That's mm. our biggest bank. So if we keep on this path, if we have six billion, mm. the biggest new permanent spend ever uh, at the upcoming budget, that will mean that inflation and interest rates stay higher for longer are hurting a lot of New Zealanders. Right. And I do have specific views on the sort of things that shouldn't be okay. spent, that we shouldn't be wasting money on in the upcoming budget. I know that Grant Robertson would um, would have some issue with that term um, permanent spending for the $6 billion that is forecast for the upcoming May budget. But again, specifically, and I want specifics here, what spending so far from yep. the government has led to inflation? Because you've spoken in vague terms about three waters in the COVID fund, but I want some specific examples. Well, I don't, I don't think they're vague. I mean, it's half a billion dollars uh, that's gone into a uh, health restructure. Um, the the, the okay, minister so, is quite clear. So it's in a the half a billion dollars. Budget, in the upcoming budget, a big chunk of that six billion will go in there. And let me just, let me just run you no, through no, the No, six, no, 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 but the, we're talking about uh, you, you're the ones. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but you're the one saying that government spending has led to 5.9% inflation. So if we take that half a billion dollars for, for, for the uh, health restructures, that's less than one two hundredth of the government's overall expenditure from last year. Are you seriously suggesting that spending of less than one two hundredth of the government's budget has led to inflation? You've well, mischaracterised entirely what I've said. Not when I've given you some, but I've also made clear inflation is international. I'm not copying all the blame on government spending. I think I already said that. But what is also true is that in the tight, constrained economy we have right now, mm. with inflation at 5.9%, where all the commercial banks are very clear that domestic factors and government spending need to be reined in, I'm just saying, you know what, Grant Robertson? Maybe you should rein in that new spending. Maybe some fiscal discipline is the right thing here. And maybe focus on quality investment over big spray and walk away spends uh, will ensure actually New Zealanders aren't hurt as much at the pump uh, in terms of food prices, in terms of rent uh, and housing. And, and I think that's actually uh, right. not only a valid view, uh, it's the right one. So, so would a national government give more support to businesses, particularly in the hospitality sector, that are struggling under the red alert level settings right now? 
in the end, Grant Roberts has said so, uh, and he's got to uh, actually come out and make quite clear. We but understand would, the power Would a pain. national government... i tell you what I think. Well, I'm going to answer your question. Will you, will you let me answer? Here's my view, Jack. Actually, when it's arbitrary settings on 14 days around isolation rules, when most countries are at 10 or even 5, mm. uh, when it's a question of not being able to get rats, these sort of settings are in fact the most powerful thing and freeing up on that end will ensure actually uh, with a minimum wage going up on 1 April, less businesses will close in hospitality and retail uh, and accommodation. So. Yes, there's a question of financial support given the government's settings on COVID, but the more powerful lever here is actually opening some things up, mm. not holus bolus, but getting to a more normalised uh, situation, given that Omicron is a different risk profile yeah. uh, than what we've seen uh, previously. So, so just be really, really clear with me here. Does National support the increase to the minimum wage coming into effect in April? We acknowledge that if you're on the minimum wage, it hurts. Although even for someone on the minimum wage, they are treading water. All this does is cover inflation. But, you know, we've got to be also pretty clear. If you're a small business right now, that minimum wage will send actually hundreds, possibly more businesses to the wall. They will close uh, in April uh, and in May this year. And so I don't think it's something we see as um, the right move right now. OK. Does unemployment need to increase in order for inflation to drop? No, but I think what's also true is that if you look at unemployment right now, yes, the government can say 3.2 or 3.4% right there, but let's also remember there are 90,000 more people on job seeker support. We actually have a dependency crisis in New Zealand at the moment. At a time when the economy's tight, when businesses are crying out for workers, um, the government should be doing more to get a, a bunch of people who are languishing in dependency uh, into jobs. Before we let you go, um, I want to ask you about the conversion ban that was passed through Parliament last, uh, this week. And of course, this was opened up to a conscience vote to MPs. Now, I've got a clip from breakfast earlier this week that I want to play you. This is uh, both of our old mate, Maddie McLean, speaking to Christopher Luxon. And I look back at Simon Bridges, his appearance at the 2019 Big Gay Out. At the time he said, it's incredibly important that everyone knows national is a place, uh, is national is about diversity, inclusiveness, and of course making sure that New Zealand is a place you can be who you are and be who you want to be. So Manny McLean put that to your party leader, but I want to put it to you. Uh, you voted against the ban on conversion therapy. So were those words a couple of years ago just bollocks? No, I believe them with every fibre of my being. The reality is, though, this law is simplistic and an overreach. If it was simply about, you know, forcing... Uh, gay people, uh, many people uh, through conversion therapy uh, to, do, to do things they don't want to do, I would vote for this wholeheartedly. But there are a raft of more complex issues around gender dysphoria that's growing, uh, around for some people that being permanent, for some people not. And the ability of parents actually to have mature, honest conversations with their children, rather than what this bill says, which is unless you're in the affirmation only category, you can go to jail for up to three years. So I stand by my vote. I do think this is a bill that, as I say, is simplistic and overreach with complex issues around gender. Actually, parents should be able to be parents. Do you think that, that you can teach someone not to be gay? 
That's, that's not the point I'm making. When I talk about gender dysphoria, I'm talking not about orientation, but about identity. And what is true is that for some people, um, that will be uh, permanent. Actually, they're born in the wrong body. What's also true, and the evidence increasingly in the Northern Hemisphere particularly is showing, is that there are people for which you know, there are phases uh, in life. And I'm simply saying parents should be able to have those discussions uh, around puberty blockers, around uh, in terms of the consequences sometimes which are permanent in gender reassignment, the ability to have those conversations. Not what this bill does, which say if parents want to have those conversations and they don't fit within the law, there is a three-year imprisonment penalty about it. Look, I doubt many New Zealanders have heard what I'm saying before, actually, because that wasn't the picture that's been betrayed by the Labour Party who's passed this bill. Now, I absolutely want people to be able to live the lives that they want, but I also know a law that's overreached when I see it. Hey, thank you so much for your time. We always really appreciate how generous you are with it. That is Nationals Finance Spokesperson Simon Bridges. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter, or if you really must, that's how you get us on Facebook. After the break, we will take you to Canada and the trucker convoy which inspired the Parliament protests there. How differently are Canadian police handling the crisis? Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Police in Ottawa are beginning to take a more forceful approach to protests that have brought much of the Canadian capital to a standstill. Marika Walsh is a reporter with The Globe and Mail in Ottawa and she is there on the front lines of the protest for us this morning. Kia ora, Marika, what is the latest? Well, the latest is that the police have made a lot of progress since they really began to move in Friday morning in Ottawa. So it's now Saturday afternoon. I'm standing just... A couple metres back from one of the lines between police and protesters, the police have set up fencing now to stop protesters from getting onto Wellington Street, which borders our parliamentary buildings and where many of the biggest trucks were blocked. Those are now being towed. The people are being pushed back slowly to surely by police, but they seem to have paused a bit. They've taken a break. They've put the fences up, I think, because there are so many more people out today protesting. The Trudeau government has in the last couple of days taken the extraordinary step of invoking the Emergency Act. What does that actually mean? Well, it's the first time it has ever been used in Canada since it was introduced in the 1980s to replace the War Measures Act. It essentially gives the government sweeping powers as well as allowing the government to then give police and other businesses sweeping powers. So, for example, they are compelling tow truck companies to work with police. They are um, allowing banks to freeze accounts without a court order. So those are examples of the powers. You can hear people chanting behind me. They're chanting freedom in French right now. It sounds like USA, but it's actually liberté, which is French for freedom. And so you're getting a sense now of, of the feeling of the people in the crowd. The police are remaining very calm throughout, but we have seen a few skirmishes as well. And what are the emergency powers actually allow police to do? So it allows the police, for example, to declare the parliamentary precincts a, a protected area, to ban people from being there, to declare areas critical infrastructure that would prevent the protests from happening. I have to apologize. It's very windy right now. There's a gust coming through. That's ruining the audio. But essentially, it gives absolutely sweeping powers for the police 
for the governments to action. For example, people are bringing kids here. It's now illegal to bring kids to this protest. And those people who are bringing kids can face fines and prison time. Marika, in both Canada and New Zealand, we have seen protesters claiming to speak on behalf of the people. Do the Canadian protests have a significant level of public support? Well, there is a minority of support. I would consider it a significant minority. So about 30% early in the protest said they support the cause of the convoy, but now we're seeing a big change and shift in sentiment about how they are behaving. They have completely upended the lives of downtown Ottawa residents for three weeks now. People are angry at how they are behaving, but also people in the protest and people who support the protest are angry at what they say is government overreach and how they are now trying to clear it up. I know your government or the police force in New Zealand is taking a softer approach. That's what the police did the first three weeks here in Ottawa. It did not work. It led to a lot of unsafe and illegal activity. And so now they are going in with force, but they are trying to outnumber people rather than actually using force. So it's, it's a show of the power of the police right now with police forces from right across the country, right mm. here in the nation's capital. Yeah, there are some really interesting similarities between the New Zealand and Canadian protests and some differences mm -hmm. as well. In Canada, the truckers have used their vehicles to block critical infrastructure, but in New Zealand, that isn't happening, at least at the moment. There are, there are cars all over the streets, it's inconvenient, but infrastructure hasn't been targeted in the same way. Is public support behind the use of an increased level of force by the police? Well, we know that the majority of Canadians do support the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. So that is a sign that they are ready and fed up with these protests and ready to see them go. I would say that certainly the government first dealt with the border blockades because that really affected the economy, stopped flow of supply chains mm -hmm. for our biggest border crossing with the U.S. I just spoke, though, with one protester who was at one of the border blockades was arrested, charged, and now came up to Ottawa to support these protesters here. He's selling T-shirts to try and raise money for his legal case now. So you can see how committed the people in the protest are. Mm. That said, the police are clearly, with, with having the upper hand here in Ottawa, they've made a lot of headway over the last 48 hours, and I expect they'll continue to do so. And what are the political repercussions for Justin Trudeau? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the big question. Really, all levels of government in Ontario, which is where the capital is located, are losing right now. I think it's fair to say people are very upset with how this was handled, that it was allowed to go on for so long. It has shaken public trust in our democratic institutions, our institutions of government. However, the prime minister is in the House of Commons in a minority. His government right now is debating the Emergencies Act. They have the from one minor party, so they will be able to get that declaration passed in the House of Commons, but the official opposition are against it. And one of the questions is, will history show this was actually overreach because other blockades were able to be cleared without the use of this Emergencies Act? Mm. Hey, thank you so much for your time, your insights and expertise, and thanks for getting out into the cold for us. We really appreciate it. That is Marika Walsh, who is a reporter for The Globe and Mail in Ottawa. I know you have one more question at home. The answer is minus 15 degrees. After the break, despite years of better uh, talk about better funding for palliative care, New Zealand hospices are facing a funding crisis. It's really tough and ironically it's almost terminal.
Kia ora e we welcome back. When the end-of-life choice referendum was being debated, people on both sides of the argument agreed on one thing. Palliative care in New Zealand needs to have a better funding model. What we would like to see is um, some certainty and some around sustainable funding. And so that's, that would help hospices to plan for the future. I think it's really clear that when it comes to palliative care generally, uh, we don't have a, a sustainable funding model in particular in place. Uh, it is one of our ambitions to try and establish that. Properly funded end-of-life care is what needs to happen before, in my opinion, we push the nuclear button and the option of euthanasia. Now, for many people, funding hospice services is a no-brainer. A third of New Zealanders who die every year, so more than 20,000 people, are supported in their final days by hospices. And could there be a more worthy cause than a service which helps people have a dignified, peaceful and meaningful death? The problem is, of course, it costs money. Of the 27 hospices around New Zealand with DHB contracts, most receive about two-thirds of their annual funding from the government. But the other third has to be made up. Those hospice shops aren't just for fun. They bring in millions of dollars that hospices use to support people in their dying days. That's why Cabinet has met this afternoon and made the decision that New Zealand will move to Alert Level 4 from 11.59pm tonight. But the COVID-19 lockdowns have been financially devastating for some hospices. Fundraising events were cancelled and shops had to close. Now, back in 2020, the government gave hospices a one-off payment to help them with COVID-19. They gave $7.3 million from the COVID relief fund, but that was to cover all hospices nationwide. And last year, when Delta arrived, the Ministry of Health wouldn't help. Q&A has obtained a letter from Dr Ashley Bloomfield from late October last year, which says this. The previous year's emergency funding was to, quote, recompense hospices for foregone revenue from retail activities, both current and future. In other words, when Delta hit, businesses qualified for new support payments, but some hospices got nothing. The Ministry of Health had actually been working alongside Hospice New Zealand on a new permanent funding structure. The Ministry says the work is ongoing and has highlighted areas where improvement is needed. But hospices say they're facing a funding crisis now. How bad is it? Well, nationwide, last year's Delta outbreak cost hospices $6.2 million in retail revenue alone. Hospice New Zealand says in Auckland and Waikato, the loss was $5.1 million. But just as an example, take Tōtara Hospice in South Auckland. It serves one of the biggest communities in the country. Tōtara didn't qualify for wage support or resurgence payments, and all six of its charity shops were closed, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars in the second half of last year. So then, despite all the talk in the end-of-life choice debate about better funding for palliative care services, by the end of March, Tōtara Hospice will record an annual loss of more than $1.3 million. The funding crisis is so bad, they've had to remove some of their inpatient beds. I went back to Tōtara Hospice in South Auckland and spoke with CEO Tina McCafferty. I think to understand how difficult it is, you need to really understand who we are. We've been in our community for 40 years. There's about 2,200 deaths in, in South Auckland every year and we see 1,200 of those families. 
we provide nearly 40,000 interventions of care um, all across South and South East Auckland. And to do that, we need $12 million a year. Government, through the DHB currently, funds is 6.5 million, roughly, and about another 790,000 in, in services to support GPs in primary care. So when you add that up, it's about 63% of our total funding. That's where how hard it is is really important because that 63% has locked us out of any ability to meet the criteria on the wages subsidy since August 2021. So right now, we've lost an actual $880,000. And as you say, Jack, we're predicting to lose 1.34 million. It's really tough and ironically, it's almost terminal. How does that shortfall affect the services you can provide today? We're constantly having to revise what are we doing? How are we doing it? Can we do it in a way that is sustainable and meets our duty of care to patients? So to give you an example of that, after the first waves of COVID, we were down well over $1.5 million. We did get a wage subsidy from government at that point, different criteria. But the losses of 1.5 million in an already underfunded sector meant that we had to reduce the amount of inpatient beds that we have available out of our discretionary funding rather than our, our DHB funding, our discretionary earnings that we make through our hard work. So to be clear, you have had to reduce the number of inpatient beds you have for your community. We had to reduce the number of beds that we have available and we've had to streamline our services. That's during a period when the government has pumped billions of dollars into wage support and resurgence support. I mean, if you look at the overall support packages, almost $19 billion have been offered to businesses now. When you look at the support offered to businesses and c compare that with the support you've received, what do you think? I'm smiling because it, it really beggars belief, doesn't it? I want the public, particularly the community of South and South East Auckland, to be shocked. And then I want them to be outraged that the availability of great hospice-based palliative care services for them is entirely still dependent on a postcode lottery. It's entirely dependent on whether my team of second-line support can sell enough furniture, can sell enough second-hand shirts. Can you imagine going to your GP or going to a surgeon at the hospital and they said to you, well, Jack, we could do that in six months' time if we've sold enough auction items at our next fundraiser. In a, in a modern 2022 health system in a developed country like New Zealand, it's staggering. It's a question of values though, isn't it? I just think back to the end of life choice debate and heading into that referendum, parties on all sides agreed that we need to better fund palliative care in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. That's right, they did. And we are surviving on an oily rag underneath a ticking clock. To me, that brings up an image of a bomb. <laughs> um, the, the system that we are working under is total, we can't take that anymore, it's going to give. Let's talk about the government response. Mm -hmm. I have seen a letter from Dr Ashley Bloomfield at the end of October last year in which he had been asked for more funding for the hospice sector during the Delta outbreak. And he says, sorry, the $7 million that the sector received in 2020 
was to last you for the rest of COVID, no matter how many outbreaks New Zealand experienced. What do you think of the government response? I'm sure you and I had a very similar response to that letter, of course. We've received that letter. Uh, Hospice New Zealand have tried hard to advocate for the sector, particularly for Auckland hospices, all Auckland hospices, since August 2017. The fact that the Deputy Di uh, sorry, the Director General of Health can write to the sector to say that 7.35 million of relief funding was to forego the, the current and all future losses is entirely staggering. Can you imagine saying that to tourism, hospitality, um, other industries so, so affected by COVID? And one other thing that I would say about that, Jack, is inequity is really, really easy to recognise. Inequity is something that looks entirely unnecessary. It's unfair and it's unjust. Importantly, it's easy to remedy with a will to shift. And government's response thus, thus far, and I have been writing to Minister Little, I've been writing to every politician who represents anything to do with the constituencies here, Judith Collins, Shane Retty, Christopher Luxon, Anaili Avasa, some of those have spoken to Chris, Christopher Hipkins, to Ashley Blomfield. We are met with low impact responses. We are deflected and deferred. And I'm not here to disrespect individuals. That's not what it's about. The, the system is perfectly designed to give us what it's getting, which is fragmentation and a, a, and a lottery response. I'm also not here to feign niceties in, in the face of injustice when hospice care for South and South East Auckland is materially under threat. I would also just like to add that, in fairness, the, the, the politicians from governments um, and opposition who have responded, Anaili Avasa, Christopher Luxon, Judith Collins, Shane Retty, have tried to advocate and we are met with silence. Have you heard anything from Andrew Little? No, I haven't heard a thing back from my letters from Minister Little, unfortunately. I know that Simeon Brown, eh, as one of our, our catchment areas MPs, did write to Minister Little. He deferred that letter through to the Ministry and a response was given back from the Deputy Director-General and it echoed exactly what the Director-General had referred to. That's 7.35 million. We received as total a hospice 248,000 of that. 248,000 over 7.35 million. And we've lost, since COVID, roughly 3 million in total. And we're told repeatedly that the health reforms will be the answer. We can't wait to be in the queue of visibility for that. Now, to be clear, most hospices in New Zealand don't want to receive 100% of their funding from the government and DHBs. And I know that Hospice New Zealand is working on a framework for a funding structure that might be used in the future. But speaking personally, what do you think would be an appropriate way to fund palliative care services through hospices in New Zealand? We need to get out of the low impact, quick fix mentality. In my professional opinion, we need to get 
business leaders, health leaders, hospice leaders together. And we need to look at having nationally agreed and defined service specifications that are nationally agreed and locally commissioned. We need to have a funding model behind that that is based on bundles of care and which matches um, transparently a fair, a fair price for the services given that should be adjusted, weight adjusted, for aspects such as socio-economic socio deprivation and rurality. I want to pick up on a comment you made right at the start of this interview. You said, ironically, Tortora is facing a near terminal crisis at the moment. Next month, I think, is Tortora's 40th anniversary. Is this an existential crisis? It's right on the tipping point of an existential crisis. There won't be a drama. We won't all of a sudden just one day shut our doors and that will be it in the next 12 months. If we keep going with the really 10 years long, you know, previous governments, current government, not looking to address how to sustainably fund and contract for hospice services, then over the next 24 months, we will become a shadow of ourselves. We've already made cuts. And that is a moral and social wrong for palliative need in South Auckland. And it's a story which is similar across our sector. Um, if we go under, or become a shadow of ourselves. 40,000 care interventions and growing will land in Middlemore and Auckland City hospitals. They're already buckling. Our partners and colleagues in primary care are already buckling for the system that's unacceptable. For patients and families, it's unforgivable. That is Tortora Hospice CEO Tina McCafferty. Health Minister Andrew Little told us this. Hospices do an important job caring for some of the sickest New Zealanders and we appreciate the work they do. The COVID pandemic has made their job more difficult, which we acknowledge with extra funding. Under our current system, hospices are funded by DHBs. This will change under reforms that come into effect in July. Tina McCafferty and Tortora Hospice have raised issues with me that I am looking into. All right, stay with us. Q&A will return after the break. Yo, we are almost done for this morning. But before we go, a quick reminder. Every week we publish Q&A as a podcast. So you can watch it on the box and then listen to it again. We put it up without ads and you can find it by searching NZQ&A on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For now though, kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. From all the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Hey te ra wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.